Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. The date is April 18, 1996. The place is Tunica, Mississippi. Your assignment is to investigate the murder of a wife and mother, Shannon Sanderson. Please note witness names have been changed for privacy. This is an exclusive podcast for patrons only. Gerald Powers leans casually over the railing of the second floor of Sam's Town Hotel and Gambling Hall in Tunica, Mississippi. He is a lanky white male wearing a yellow shirt, jeans, and a red ball cap covering short, dark hair with a receding hairline. Below, gamblers are meandering across the casino floor, deciding where to place their chips and hoping luck will find them tonight on April 18, 1996. Look out over the railing and you see blackjack tables full of players who eye their cards and slide their chips across the cool green of the tables, hoping to score big. One of those players is pretty, dark-haired Shannon Sanderson. Shannon is a looker, petite, thick, dark, curling hair just past her shoulders with pretty, soulful brown eyes. Gerald Powers is not interested in the strolling people or the hopefuls at the tables. He is watching Shannon because she is winning big. The petite lady knows her game. Look how all of those chips are stacking up in front of her. This is all caught on video. In every casino in the United States, closed-circuit TV runs 24-7. It has to be. When millions of dollars roll across the tables all day and all night, and alcohol flows like little tiny rivers, it's imperative that casino management knows everything that happens. Luckily for Shannon Sanderson and her loved ones, the monitors at Sam's Town Hotel and Gambling Hall are watching over her. And they're watching over Gerald Powers. Shannon Sanderson was good at blackjack, but tonight she was perturbed. Her husband Robert Sanderson should have been at her side because they had planned to celebrate his birthday together. Shannon had dressed carefully for their celebration. She looks good in anything she wears, and tonight it's her black dress, a jacket with silver buttons, high heels, and false pink nails. It was a second marriage for both. At 25, Shannon was quite a bit younger than Robert. They had met when she worked for him at his lucrative alarm company, and things had been so wonderful when they met and then married. But lately, turmoil seemed to be tearing them apart. Shannon had two children from a previous marriage. They planned to drop off her children with their paternal grandparents and Carolyn Holland, also in Memphis. Then, Shannon and her husband would head off for the casinos in Tunica. Celebrate, maybe rekindle some sparks. So Shannon and Robert were ready to celebrate by spending the evening at the casino, and they were about to leave their large, comfortable home in Memphis, Tennessee. 
and then Robert's daughter from his previous marriage arrived with a surprise birthday cake. Robert decided he wanted to stay at home and celebrate, but Shannon still wanted to go out. Shannon and Robert argued bitterly. The fight became so heated that Shannon told him, just stay at home. As planned, she dropped off her children with their paternal grandparents, Ed and Carolyn, at about 6.30 p.m., and then pointed her car towards Tunica, about an hour's drive, determined to trade her anger for cash at Blackjack. Not that they needed the money. Robert was a self-made millionaire. So here she sat, alone at the Blackjack table, winning big, which probably eased her anger at Robert. Finally, it was a little after 3 o'clock in the morning when Shannon decided to quit while she was ahead. It was time to cash in her chips and head home. She thanked the dealer, who wished her a good night, and she began to carry her chips to the cashier's window. The cashier counted out her winnings, $3,000, $5,000. The cashier suggested she take the money in a check, but Shannon requested cash. Can I have that in $100 bills, please, she asked. The money was carefully counted out and slid through under the safety glass. Per policy, a security officer walked Shannon to her car for her safety. Unbeknownst to all parties, they had a follower. Gerald Powers was now casually walking down the stairs when he saw Shannon leave the table. His eyes followed her as she cashed in. He was trailing her when she exited, and now he paid careful attention as Shannon got into her car and he watched the security officer making sure she locked her car door. Shannon had a 56-mile drive back home and only a few hours to live. Not a lot of vehicles drove down this suburban street so early in the morning, and it was an established neighborhood. People would note cars that were out on the street. Rebecca C. lived in the same neighborhood as Ed and Caroline Holland, where Shannon's children were staying. Rebecca would later explain how she was on her front porch a few minutes after 4 o'clock a.m. A van driving down the street caught her eye because it drove past a second time. Then she observed Shannon's car drive past with a maroon vehicle following. The incident meant nothing until she watched the news the next day. Joe W. also lived in the same neighborhood. He was just coming home from work at about 4.30 a.m. He was parking at his house and had just exited his vehicle when he saw Shannon drive by. A second car, dark and possibly a Chevrolet Beretta, followed her. The second car turned into a driveway to reverse, then parked curbside at the Hollands. At the time, the Diller family lived beside the Hollands. Mr. Diller heard dogs barking and looked out of his window to see someone crouching near Shannon's car. He would later explain, that person had a red ball cap snuggled down over their head. Mr. Diller's wife would later report she heard, quote, a scream and a thud. She would look out to see a car parked curbside with its dome light on. Whoever was driving was pushing something down into the back seat, and then they quickly sped away. These neighbors had no way of knowing at the time they were witness to Gerald Powers following Shannon in the neighborhood. Then Powers pulled over as Shannon parked at the curb in front of her former in-law's home. Powers was a predator, and his instinct told him it was time to strike. 
It was approximately 4.45 a.m. Ed Holland, Shannon's former father-in-law, awoke when his neighbor's dogs began a crescendo of barking. He moved a curtain aside to see Shannon bending over next to her car. Don't! Don't! He heard her cry. Edward grabbed a shirt and ran outside. Shannon was gone. Her car sat in mute testimony to whatever had taken place. The sky turned a dark purple, a dusky rose, and soon it was a full morning with the smell of coffee wafting through the neighborhood. There was still no sign of Shannon. Shannon's family notified law enforcement. Near her car, a fake pink fingernail lay in the street. Nearby, a silver button from her jacket. Farther away, another drama played out. Alonzo Rakes had pushed his school bus north down Highway 301 near Eudora, Mississippi every school day, and every day he drove it past an abandoned house. He never saw a car, never observed anyone at this abandoned house. Alonzo was an observant person. It came from years of trekking a busload of children from the safety of their homes to school. But today, April 19, 1996, Alonzo noticed a white male backing a maroon Beretta into the house's driveway. It was about 6.40 a.m. Lisa Powers was in the home she shared with her husband, Gerald, when he came busting in at about 9.30 in the morning, the morning of April 19, 1996. She knew he had spent the evening gambling at Samstown Hotel and Gambling Hall. That would be in Tunica, Mississippi. Gerald was jovial, but kept looking out the window, yanking on the blinds. He gave Lisa a $100 bill, bragging he'd won big at the casino. Lisa followed him to look out the window herself, wondering what her husband could be watching for. Gerald had driven her maroon Beretta, but her car had been washed. Closer inspection would reveal it was vacuumed and detailed. Lisa could think of only one reason why Gerald could be so nice. And it was not good. You're having an affair, Lisa snarled at him. I'm not having an affair, he told her. But she kept hammering him with questions, accusations. And so he told her the truth about what he had been doing that morning. He didn't have an affair, Gerald told his wife. He had watched a woman play blackjack and she went big. So he followed her home, snuck up behind her, and jumped her. He dragged this woman into his car. Gerald had to stop once to stuff her in the trunk. He explained that he had to drive her to an abandoned Mississippi house. Gerald took the woman's jewelry and cash, and then he killed her. Tossing her purse and the gun into the river near the location of the old Splash Casino, he did wonder if the victim's neighbor and a bus driver had seen him, but decided they couldn't identify him. Later that day, Gerald Powers visited a woman named Beverly Wicks. He asked her to provide an alibi for him on the night of April 18th. Sure, Beverly laughed, as long as you didn't kill anybody. Powers didn't seem to think this was funny. Beverly thought it was hysterical. But Gerald Powers was paranoid, and he thought he could feel law enforcement just closing in. He was already on parole, and of course he had no desire to return to prison. Gerald hurriedly packed a bag and told his wife Lisa he buried the stolen cash in their backyard. 
If anyone asks, I'm visiting my mother in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he instructed. And then he was gone, driving her maroon Beretta. As he sped off, Lisa was picking up the telephone to call authorities. My husband might be involved in the murder of that woman, she said. She didn't tell of his confession. Not yet. Gerald Powers was back in a week for more cash. He told his wife the stolen jewelry was also buried in the yard. He wrote a note about his unhappiness with his marriage and sped off again in his wife's car. Back in Memphis, Tennessee, authorities were scouring the area looking for Shannon Sanderson. Authorities strongly suspected her husband, Robert. When her family needed a recent photo of their beloved Shannon for their missing flyers, Robert refused to give them a photo. Then he acted like he didn't care if his wife was missing. The last time he saw her, they had fought and their marriage was said to be on rocky ground. Robert refused to take part in any searches or share any information. Most females are harmed by a significant other. Only about 10% are harmed by a stranger. There was a silver button and pink fake nail left in the street. There was her vehicle parked at the curb of her in-laws. Shannon's ex-husband was investigated, but he had a solid alibi, and Robert knew where and when Shannon was going that night. Robert was definitely under the radar. Samstown Hotel and Gambling Hall in Tunica, Mississippi provided surveillance tape. There was Shannon, gambling, with several angles of video. She was alone. There were people always walking around her. She didn't seem to be speaking to anyone. She was escorted out by security. Then the officer is observed on video returning to inside the casino. The officer stays inside during the time she went missing. Could the security officer been in collusion with someone else? Did Shannon run off with her winnings, $5,000? No, her family assured investigators. Robert is a self-made millionaire, and Shannon would never leave her kids. Never. Shannon Sanderson's family did everything possible in the search. Still, no Shannon. The calendar pages kept turning. And then, the property around the abandoned house at Highway 301 near Endora, Mississippi was being cleared. It was May 9, 1996. Two workers were discussing the project, walking through the field, when they decided to look at the old house and determine what needed to be done. As they walked toward the old house, the stench was overwhelming, and they investigated. Shannon's body lay on the floor of the old structure. She had a single gunshot wound to the head. Someone had struck her so hard, an upper right front tooth was missing, and another tooth was chipped. Some of her facial bones were fractured. One of her carefully painted pink nails was missing. She still wore her black dress, and it was missing a button. Her jewelry was missing. It is chilling to think of the fear that Shannon must have felt, abducted only so many feet away from her children and loved ones. The tiny woman's terror of being drugged into a car, then tossed into a trunk, wondering where she was, is beyond comprehension. Shannon was laid to rest on May 15th. She was only 25 years old, a mother to little children, 
a wife, a family member. She was beaten, terrorized, and murdered for $5,000. By now, Gerald Powers was full-blown paranoid, deciding running from the law was far better than a death sentence he knew would be waiting for him. He was driving his wife's Beretta through Hebronville, Texas, when he observed an INS checkpoint. Pushing on the brake, Gerald made a quick turn to avoid the checkpoint. Agents saw the car turning, avoiding the checkpoint, and they made a traffic stop. Evidently, Gerald Powers never heard the adage, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, because Powers pulled a knife on agents who had guns strapped to their belts. Powers was arrested. When searched, law dogs found 14 $100 bills stuffed in his pockets. A call confirmed he was on parole. Powers was soon sitting in jail. The Beretta was confiscated and searched carefully. Investigators discovered a fiber consistent with Shannon Sanderson's clothing in the back seat of the Beretta. Lisa Powers would eventually confess the entire story. She would lead police to Shannon's jewelry. Investigators could not locate the gun or the purse. Returning to the video at Samstown Hotel and Gambling Hall, investigators now identified Gerald Powers each step, tracking Shannon as she moved through the casino with Powers following. A jury convicted Gerald Powers of aggravated robbery and first-degree murder in the perpetration of a robbery. He received a death sentence for the murder of Shannon Sanderson. There is no closure in a murder case. There is a ripple effect. Two sides are forever affected. The victim's side of the crime and the perpetrator's family. Studies show each side experiences the same emotions. Anger, grief, sadness, guilt. We belong to a club where no one wants membership, one surviving victim told me once. The club of parents with a murdered loved one. Another victim survivor advises, you don't get over it, you get through it. Of course, the Senate's never brought Shannon back, but it did take a dangerous man off the street, finally. Shannon was not the only woman Powers had ruthlessly attacked. In 1979, Rutherford County, Tennessee, Powers followed Emily Dodger home at night. Emily was exiting her vehicle when Powers attacked her, holding a knife to her throat. Emily fought, and Powers used a crescent wrench to bash her in the head. Emily still managed to escape and identify Powers, who pleaded guilty to aggravated assault. In 1980, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Karen Case was given Powers a ride. He pulled a knife on her, breaking her nose. Karen was able to drive to the county jail and hit the car horn, summoning help. Again, Powers pleaded guilty to aggravated assault. And then, in 1984, Hines County, Mississippi, Powers entered the home of Jewel Griffin. He beat her with an iron skillet and then stole her credit cards, jewelry, and a pistol. And again, Powers pleaded guilty to robbery and aggravated assault. And over and over, this man was allowed back on the street thanks to plea bargaining, a tool used to assist an overcrowded legal system. Is parole and probation the answer for violent offenders? 
50% of probationers and parolees will reoffend. Half will commit a technical violation, such as breaking a curfew. The other half will commit a crime, such as a burglary. As an example, the 2022 Recidivism Report, prepared by the North Carolina Sentencing and Policy Advisory Commission, notes that for 2019 in North Carolina, 37% of probationers were arrested within two years after receiving probation, and 49% of parolees were arrested within two years after receiving parole. For more information on this report, you can go to nccourts.gov. A report by the United States Sentencing Commission titled Recidivism Among Federal Offenders, a Comprehensive Overview, summarizes that criminal history was closely correlated with recidivism rates. Offenders with zero criminal history have a rearrest rate of 30.2%. Offenders in the highest criminal history category have an 80.1%, meaning if you are a habitual criminal, you are more likely to violate probation or parole. A copy of this report can be found at ussc.gov. Three times in a six-year period, Gerald Powers brutally beat, robbed, or burglarized women Yet all three times he was allowed to walk the streets among women. And these are the crimes we know of. Then Shannon Sanderson, who just wanted to have a nice night on the town, crossed paths with this man. He sits on death row, but if statistics are right, he will die of natural causes rather than death by the state for his horrific crime against Shannon. Gerald Lee Powers resides in Nashville, Tennessee's Riverbend Maximum Security Unit on death row. Today, he is bald, his head glistening in a most recent mugshot, his eyes stare wildly into the camera. Beautiful Shannon is interred at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Memphis, Tennessee. Husband Robert, who died in 2007, is laid to rest beside her. If you would like to know more on this case, Shannon's story is treated respectfully on the Oxygen channel, Murdered by Morning, in episode 109, Gambling with Death. I appear on this show as a commentator. Thank you for listening to the story of Shannon Sanderson. Please keep her and her loved ones in your thoughts and send them positive energy. I hope you will consider subscribing to this podcast and become a patron to hear more exclusive podcasts like this one. Hey listeners, my name is Judith Yates, true crime author and criminologist, and I have taught common sense self-defense for over 25 years. I have finally put all of these classes together in a book that's called How to Recognize the Devil, because I believe devils walk among us every day. And we can recognize these devils and escape crime if we know how. We can teach it to our children, to our elderly, and special interest groups. The book is available at www.besttruecrime.com or you can pick it up at amazon.com or wherever good true crime books are sold. Now, I don't make any money off of this book because I believe it's more important for you 
to learn how to use these skills. All the proceeds from this book goes to a nonprofit organization. Pick up a copy of How to Recognize the Devil. It does include worksheets for you to better use the skills taught in this book. And please be safe out there. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.